At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Now, so this morning, um, I am just going to read a couple verses from Romans 3 um, and then pray for us, and then we'll kind of jump in uh, and unpack this uh, together. So um, Romans 3, 23 through 25 is where I'll be reading from this morning. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful this morning as we've just celebrated for your incredible love for us that you have shown on the cross and through the work of Christ Jesus. And we come this morning as a people just to express our love and admiration back to you. Thank you for being a God that would see fit to recognize our need and our desperation and what, who would do what is necessary to redeem us back to yourself. And so, God, as we come to your word this morning, I just want to simply ask that you would use this time to remind us again of your great love and your great work of salvation. We confess how easy it is so often in our lives, Lord, to be distracted to have our minds and our hearts turned away from you and to look towards other things for that which would fulfill or satisfy, even to seek our salvation in things far less than what you have provided. So this morning I ask that you, out of your grace, once again would come and remind us of what you've done in, for us in Jesus and you would help turn our hearts back to that deep place of faith and trust wherever we're at in this room, you would move by your spirit to draw us into a deeper, just faith in Christ. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, Lord, what you want to say. And we just ask that your spirit would move to the glory of Christ Jesus through the preaching of your word. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. So I was driving down the highway and uh, it was kind of, you know, just daydreaming as you do. I can't remember, maybe had music on or a podcast or something. And, and then all of a sudden, off to the side of the highway, my eyes caught one of the billboards, and it grabbed my attention with two giant words plastered on it. It simply said in big, bold letters, Jesus saves. And I'll be honest, the first thought I had was, what does that even mean? Now, I'm a pastor, so I know what it means. But for the moment, it just kind of struck me driving down the highway. Like, does, does anyone even know what that means? Like, it, it was obviously meant to grab your attention. It was meant to be a message to proclaim something. There was a little number at the bottom for you to call. But it just struck me as so odd I don't know about you, but I don't think most people drive down the highway contemplating salvation. That, that doesn't seem to be my, my kind of MO. And here was this kind of big, bold message, but it just seems so devoid of context, so, so devoid of understanding that I thought, Man, do, do people even know what it means that Jesus saves? I've been a pastor long enough sometimes as I've been around the church and interacted with Christians that 
even when we talk about our understanding of Jesus and salvation, I think that sort of question comes up even within church contexts. We often can come to places where we use phrases and cliches and ideas that we just learn intuitively kind of being around, but we never stop for a moment to really think about the deeper reality of what it actually is saying. Ask a lot of Christians, yeah, Jesus saves, sure. Ask them what it means. Sometimes that can be a different thing altogether. And yet, one of the fundamental things to our faith is the idea that Jesus does, in fact, genuinely save. We've been in this series together that we've been calling The Essentials, where we've been studying kind of the key essential aspects of Christianity by using uh, one of the earliest creeds from the church, which is kind of given as a summary of the central truths of, uh, of our faith. And we've been kind of working through it and seeing how Scripture gives us those truths and, and reality. And so we've looked at things on, on why we believe God is creator and Lord, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Spirit or the church. But this morning we come to the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, that phrase in the creed is a very specific and particular phrase. It's actually pulled from the New Testament where authors such as Luke, who wrote Acts, or even Paul, use it as kind of a shorthand way to discuss the work of salvation that God has done in Jesus. We began our service this morning by reading Colossians 1, 13 and 14, where Paul says, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son through the redemption in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. It's kind of a, a shorthand way that both the creed and the New Testament refer to the fact and reality that Jesus does save. So it's something that's affirmed as central to our faith, but I think even as we recognize it, it naturally should lead us to the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus saves? And what does it mean for my life now? I think often when we think of the concepts of salvation, for whatever reason, we often relegate those concepts and ideas to something that happens then. Salvation is not about now. Salvation is something happening in the future. So we ask questions, not bad questions, but questions like, if you died tonight and you had to give God a reason for why you would be allowed into heaven, what would you say? Now, that's not a bad question to wrestle with. And often that question's been used by many people as a means to share the good news of Jesus. But I think what it's unintentionally taught us is that the questions of salvation are questions to relegate it to the afterlife. That salvation really has to do of whether I end up going up or whether I end up going down. But most of us don't live in a reality where that's what we consider. Oftentimes, we're struggling with the day-to-day -day reality of our lives. And when we relegate the questions of salvation merely to then, and I'm not saying they don't relate to then, we'll unpack that. I think oftentimes then things like Jesus saves seem very disconnected from the day-to-day -day life of most people. So much so that you pass the billboard and even as a pastor you go, what does that mean? And yet, the reality of the salvation that Jesus brings and the forgiveness of sins that is central to our faith is one of the most amazing realities, not for what just will happen then, but for what it means for our life now. And so this morning, I want to take some time to help you understand what we mean when we talk about the idea that Jesus saves and I'm going to give you a warning right up front. I'm going to come like a fire hose this morning. And I know many of you are shocked by that. You're like, I thought that's every week, Pastor. What do you think this is going to be different? But for a moment, I, I actually, we're going to look through eight chapters of the Bible this morning, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, because in it, I think God gives us one of the best explanations of the reality of salvation. 
And I'm going to kind of go quick, and I'm going to kind of give you a lot, and I'm kind of going to explore a lot of things. And so I gave you some notes so you can follow along and jot some things down and track with where I'm going. But the, it's intentional this morning, because what I want you for a moment to do is to get the big scope that I think the Bible talks about when it talks about salvation and how God works through Jesus to bring salvation to our lives. And I think Paul does that masterfully in the first half of Romans, and I want to kind of unpack that together so you can get a big picture. So my hope is that you'll be able to take what we talk about today and actually go back and think it through on a deeper level personally. So if I highlight something, maybe jot it down, maybe think of it if I reference a verse or a concept, because I want you to get the scope of that this morning. So if it feels like a lot, it is, but that's intentional. So let's begin where I think Paul begins in the book of Romans in verse 16. So Paul writes the book of Romans to the church in Rome. He wants to encourage them, and essentially he unpacks for them and wants them to help them understand the good news of Jesus that he's been teaching because his plan is to come to them so that they would help support him in order to help send him to Spain so he can preach the gospel to the far west of the known world. And so Paul spends a lot of time unpacking the reality of the gospel and salvation to help the Roman church understand that he's not coming to bring something different to them, but he's actually coming to help bring them good news so that they'll support him. And so in verse 16 of Romans, Paul gives his kind of standard greetings and his desire, but in verse 16 of Romans 1, he kind of gives us the main thesis statement for the book. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul begins the letter by reminding them, kind of his key statement is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, that word just means good news. And for Paul, there's three aspects to the good news. It's related to Jesus, that Jesus, first aspect, is the promised Messiah. He's the anointed king God had promised to come to establish his kingdom and deliver his people. That Jesus has died for our sins. That's key for Paul, that Jesus' death has actually meant to deal with the reality of sin. We're going to unpack that more in a moment. And then finally, that Jesus has risen from the dead, defeating the powers that stood against God and risen as the true Lord and king of all. And so Paul essentially says, I'm not ashamed of the good news, because that good news is actually the power for salvation. And so the whole book is going to focus on how does the good news of Jesus actually the power for salvation for our lives. And it's in that that he helps us see why it's so significant that Jesus saves. But in order for Paul to help us understand how the gospel is the power of salvation, the first thing that he needs us to understand is, and the first question we should ask, what are we being saved from? Right? Salvation is key, but salvation implies we're being saved from something. Well, what is that? Well, that's where Paul essentially begins his kind of argument and reason in the letter. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So as Paul begins to unpack the reality of salvation, the place that he begins for us to understand is that salvation is actually related to something in God and something in in us. First, salvation is related, Paul says, to the wrath of God. Now, that's a phrase we don't use a ton, and it's an image that sometimes I think we struggle with. Often when we hear the idea of the wrath of God, we think of God as like an angry parent or somebody just kind of up in the clouds waiting to whack us when we, we mess up. But for Paul, it's actually God's wrath that is the, one of the fundamental realities of what salvation and why we need salvation. The wrath of God, here's a simple way to understand it, is God's holy opposition against anything that would seek to come against his character or his creation. It's his holy opposition against anything that would seek to come against his character or his creation. 
So don't think wrath simply in the idea of anger, like God's just grumpy. That's not the image. The image is God is holy and good and perfect, and he designed the world a certain way. And because he's holy and good and perfect, he cannot stand for anything that would seek to come against his character as a holy God or seek to bring corruption to his creation. And so wrath is really the idea of God's opposition or his judgment. It's his desire to remove that which seeks to destroy who he is and what he has made. And so what Paul is saying is that God's wrath has been revealed, meaning God is bringing judgment against what would seek to come against his character and ultimately his creation. So that's the reality of God. What what is that for us? Because Paul gives us what actually causes those to come against his character and creation in these two phrases. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Those are two key words that you need to understand. The idea of ungodliness is the idea of a lack of reverence, worship, faith, love, trust. It's essentially to minimize God's character and not relate to him rightly in who he is. That's what ungodliness is. The second term Paul uses is unrighteousness, which is essentially the idea of to not do what is right, right? That's, that's the simple thing. It's the idea of injustice. A simple way to understand it is that which should not be. That's unrighteousness. And so what Paul is saying is the, the judgment of God, that's a good way to think of it, the wrath of God is coming against these things because in ungodliness and in unrighteousness, we actually seek to suppress God's truth, to come against his character, and to destroy his creation. And because of that, God is bringing judgment against that. What Paul describes here in many ways is what we understand and use in the phrase sin. Right? Sin is a word we use a lot around the church. We talk about sin and we kind of have different concepts of it, mistakes, missing the mark, all these kind of things. But I think Paul gives us a really good understanding here because he's actually rooting this out of the very beginning when sin enters the picture. Sin is essentially ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's not trusting and loving God for who he is, and it's acting in a way contrary to how God has designed and created the world to be, thus that it doesn't bring flourishing but destruction. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, you can see that this is the heart of sin. God creates the world good, he creates it perfect, and at the pinnacle of creation, he creates human beings in his image, essentially to be in relationship to God rightly, and then live in the world to bring flourishing to all of creation around, right? This is our goal, this is what we were created and designed for, to live in right relationship to God right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with one another to bring flourishing and right relationship to creation. The problem is, and so when God creates that, he gives human beings at the very beginning one rule. Don't eat of this tree. Enjoy all the freedom. Expand, expound, live out of your identity and in right relationship with me. Just don't eat of this tree. And what do human beings do? Well, a little snake comes along and begins to whisper in... One of the, in the first human being, hey, did God really say that? Is that really what God's about? Is he really in your best interest here? And what happens? Human beings distrust God because of a lie, and then they disobey and eat of the tree. And creation falls into chaos. And though we were meant to live in right relationship to God, we now try to usurp God And become God ourselves. And though we were meant to bring flourishing to creation, such that the world would live in harmony and people would live at peace and prosperity, the world falls into chaos and brokenness. Even to this day, 5,000 years of human history, we haven't made it much better. And so sin enters the picture. And Paul knows that at some point, if God's going to be about what God's about and bringing a good, created, flourishing, harmonious world, he's going to need to bring a judgment against sin, but that creates a problem for us. Because for Paul, and what he's going to labor over the first three chapters of Romans to show you is that everyone has sinned. 
everyone has distrusted God and disobeyed him such that the judgment of God now falls on human beings. What's the judgment? What's the consequence? See it very clearly in Genesis 3. Paul unpacks it multiple times in the book. It's death. Not physical death, spiritual death. Separation and being cut off from God himself. This is why Paul will say things like in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin are death. Because of our distrust and disobedience, all of us are now marked guilty and deserving of the consequence, which is eternal separation and being cut off from God. This is why Paul labors for three chapters and then pinnacles in verse 23 of chapter 3 in a verse well-known. Many of you probably know it, but if you haven't, it's okay. But it's a great summary verse of all that he says. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Everyone, and Paul's clear, no one's off the hook here. There's no one righteous, he says in chapter 3. Not one. No one seeks God. Even our righteous deeds are tainted by distrust and disobedience, such that all have sinned, Paul says, and have fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of being the image bearers we were created to be. Instead of bringing life and flourishing, living in right relationship with God and creation, we instead try to usurp God and bring destruction. And Paul wants to show from the very beginning that we, because of that, are marked by sin. And sin carries with it consequences. Consequences like guilt. We've done wrong and stand guilty before the holy judge. Consequences like shame, where our identity is marred and we're turned inward on ourselves. Not understanding who we are carrying a sense, all of us, not that just we've done wrong, but that we are wrong and that we've been corrupted such that even the good things we try to do in the world seem always to turn out not the way even our best intentions desire. And so Paul labors to show us everybody's sinned. We're all marked by it and we're marked by its consequences. But The good news of the gospel is that it's the power of salvation for sin. Meaning that God has now done something in Jesus to deal with that reality. And what Paul's going to do over the next five chapters is to show you this is what God has done in Jesus to deal with your sin problem. And to remove not only the consequence of death, but to actually deal with all the effects and realities of it. Because sin isn't just a one aspect thing, it's a full aspect thing. It plagues our past, it plagues our present, it plagues our future. But what Paul wants to show you is that in Jesus, God has actually done something and brought salvation in all of those aspects. And so this morning, we're going to unpack this through a diagram that I like to use that just kind of helps give you a big picture of the full nature of salvation. And it's one of those little tools that I love to use if I'm sitting on with someone to draw on a napkin or write on a whiteboard that just gives us the full aspect of how God deals with our sin. And there's three key aspects of it, past, present, and future that we're going to look at this morning. The first thing that Paul labors to show us in Romans 1, a good summary is this, that in Jesus we are saved from the penalty of sin. Right? Paul said it from the beginning, the wrath, the judgment of God against sin is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That creates a problem because all of us are ungodly and unrighteous, which means if God's bringing judgment, we're already guilty. Not one person is going to stand before God as he brings his judgment and say, hey, you're okay. You're the innocent one. Everybody else, they're the mess. You're all right. No, there's nobody like that. But what Paul wants us to see is that in Jesus, God does something about the penalty of our sin, about the reality of our guilt. This is how he says it in 324. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what's he say? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 
So as Paul unpacks the reality of what God has done in the power of salvation, the first place he starts is to note God in Jesus has justified you. That's a legal term. It means to be declared right or innocent, right? If you you stand up before a judge and you're accused of a crime, you're either declared guilty or you're declared right. What Paul wants you to see is that in Jesus, you've been declared right. Why? Because you are right? No, because God gives you his rightness. That's why he says, You've been justified by his grace as a gift. You're declared in the right, not because you've done right, but because God gives you Jesus and his rightness. And in that, he's, what's he saying in 25? He's put forward as a propitiation. That's a big word right there, right? That's when I was like, what on earth do you mean by that? Propitiation is really the idea of it's a satisfaction or payment for judgment in order for the relationship to be restored. So you can think of it as God put forward Jesus as the payment for the penalty of your sin in order to restore relationship with you. Because there was guilt. There was a division. He's holy, you're not. He's perfect, you're sinful. And so he cannot be in relationship with you unless that guilt, that division is dealt with. And what Paul wants you to see is God dealt with that in Jesus. In his death, he died to death. You should have died for sins. He was your payment. Therefore, you can be restored in relationship. And so what Paul will show you is that the way that you receive this relationship is not through work, not through effort. It's simply by faith. So he'll spend all of chapter four using Abraham as an illustration. But then in chapter five, he pinnacles with this great verse, which he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The relationship has been restored. The penalty has been dealt with, and we no longer stand under God's judgment and wrath, but we now stand under his peace and love and restoration which is amazing that the way that God sees us in Christ is not as guilty or shameful, but he sees us as righteous and whole. And so Paul wants you to see the first thing that Jesus does in his salvation of you is he removes your guilt and he removes your shame so that you can be restored in relationship with him. If you are in Jesus this morning, if you have put your faith in him, God does not see you in your sin. He only sees you in Christ's righteousness. Let that sit in for a second. Because you want to know how you probably see yourself? You see yourself in your sin. Because that's how we've trained ourselves and known ourselves because we know we're guilty. And we carry with us the guilt and shame of our sin constantly. And we all live, every human being lives out of that place, seeking to do what our first fathers and mothers tried to do. To prove ourselves that we're okay and to hide from the reality of our sin. Our identity is marred, and so we seek to live in that reality. But the gospel, God removes our sin and sees us not in that way, but now sees us as righteous. And when we get that, it fundamentally changes how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see our calling. It empowers us to live and follow the life that God is calling us into. The radical nature of grace and that we're saved from the penalty of sin means we have a whole new identity in the way we relate to God. We have peace. And I love the word peace in the Bible because it doesn't just mean a ceasing of fight. It means wholeness, shalom, harmony. This is what you have now. Now, the question, though, that comes in the reality of salvation and that Paul's going to begin to wrestle with is, great, well, if that's how God sees me, why can't I just live however I want then? Like, can't, can't I just sin? If, that, if the fundamental, if God's removed the penalty, if there's no consequence for my sin, why not just keep doing whatever I want? 
I mean, Paul raises that question in verse chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Why, why do we just keep doing whatever we want, live however we want if there's no penalty? Well, because Paul wants you to understand there's a second aspect of salvation. There's a second way in which God wants to move in Jesus in your life. So while God looks and deals with your past and removes the consequence of sin, in the present, God wants you to see that we are being saved from the power of sin. Sin doesn't just bring a penalty. It also, in our distrust and disobedience, becomes a power within us that seeks to keep us from experiencing the fullness of right relationship with God, the fullness of our purpose and identity, and the fullness of how we're called to relate to others in the world. It often moves in us in a way that tries to keep us from growing in the way God has called and designed us. And many of us feel that power of sin. How many of you in your life have felt the power in your life where there are certain aspects of how you live, how you relate to God, how you relate to others, that you just seem to not be able to get over? Like you've had that prayer of like, God, would you just take this away? Would you just help me? Because this keeps wreaking havoc and I feel like I'm back in the same cycle time and time and time again. I mean, Paul, in Romans 7, deals with this reality. In verse 15, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I don't know what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I don't I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I want, I do, or now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I mean, if there's a passage of scripture we can say amen to, who hasn't at some point felt like, yeah, I get that. I don't do what I want to do, and I do do what I don't want to do, and I try, but I can't, and I can't seem to ever get the ability to change. And I wonder if part of that is because we failed to recognize what it means that Jesus saves. We've relegated his work in his death, in his resurrection, to something that just matters then instead of seeing it as also a present reality that we can begin to experience now. That's why in Romans 6 and 7 Paul and 8, Paul wants to labor to help you see, listen, if you put your faith in Jesus... Yes, God has dealt with the penalty of your sin, but he's also changed things in the present for you that now empower you to begin to walk free, progressively free from the power of sin. He'll highlight five things. I'll touch on them quickly, quickly, right? Just jot these down, reflect on them later. He'll remind you that in the gospel, you've moved from death to life. Verse 11 of chapter 6. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's why his answer to the question, should we keep on sinning so that grace can abound? He says, no, if we've died to sin, why would we still live in it? If the present reality for those who have put their faith in Jesus is you're no longer alive to sin, but you're alive to God, why would you keep doing what you're already dead to? You see, God shifted you. He's brought you to life. He's reconnected you with himself, and you're no longer spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, but you've been made alive. So start to embrace that life, the life God designed you for. Second, in the gospel, we've moved from law to grace. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul's whole thing in Romans 7 is, listen, if you try to overcome sin by the law, by your own righteous efforts and keeping of the law, you will fail every time. You don't have the power in yourself. But here's the good news. You're not under law. You're under grace. God doesn't approach you in judgment. He approaches you in mercy, which means God has a whole different way of relating to your sin because of what Jesus has done, which means you get a whole new way of relating to your sin because of what Jesus has done. You see, what the devil wants to try to do in your life when you struggle with sin is he wants to take you back 
to your old patterns of blaming, hiding, and proving. He wants you to buy into the lie that the way that you overcome sin in your life is by trying harder and doing better. So what happens? You struggle with sin in your life. You struggle with an addiction. You struggle with a, a something in your heart and soul that you know doesn't bring life but brings destruction. And when it happens, you feel guilt. And the devil comes along and is like, well, you better make up for that. Or you better get away from that. You better let no one know that that's what happened and that that's what you struggled with. So you better hide that. You better stuff it. You better keep it somewhere else. And you better start doing the right things. And so what do we do? And, and where's the lie in that? Where's the lie? You're the way you overcome your sin. Not God has overcome your sin and is now empowering you. You are. So what do we do? Well, we hide, we try to prove it, we try to move towards making up for it, but we're not able to do that, so at some point we fail, and the whole process starts back over again. And Paul's whole point is like, listen, if you try to make up for your sin with the law, you're never going to be able to do it. You're just going to be stuck in an endless cycle where you struggle with the same things and the same things and the same things. And so many of us get trapped in that cycle. I've been in that cycle myself because we've been convinced that ultimately the way we overcome sin is by our own power. And what Paul wants you to see is, no, 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 no. The gospel is the power. The way you overcome sin is just by receiving the reality that God has given you, which totally changes how we should view the struggle. One of the things I love to ask people is, what if the next time you struggled with that sin that seems to plague you, you looked at something you shouldn't have, you did something you shouldn't have done, you had a conversation you shouldn't have, what if instead of reacting out of the law and trying to prove or blame or hide, you recognize grace and you just ask the question, why? Like what if you were just curious about your sin for a second? And what if maybe you were willing to have a conversation with someone close to you or you knew or a pastor or someone to just say, man, I, I feel like I've been stuck in this and I've been trying to hide it, but I'm kind of recognizing that I can't do that anymore. And so I'm, I'm just curious about why this is the case. I mean, that's the act of confession, right? C confession just means to agree. Confessing is just agreeing with God about your brokenness and your sinfulness. And when you do that with someone else, it begins to open up the door for God to be able to work his power in your life. Because in confession, you're saying, I can't do this. I can't earn my salvation and overcome this power on my own. That's why grace is such an amazing reality. Because when you understand that God doesn't see you out of the law, he sees you out of grace, it frees you then to say, okay, I can be honest about this. Third thing, in the gospel, God moves you from having a bad heart to a new heart. Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. If you're in Jesus this morning, God has shifted your heart. And so the path to freedom is not external conformity, but his continual inward transformation. That's a whole different way to approach it. Right? You have new desires. And if you don't find those desires present, the option is not to just say, well, okay, I guess I got to try harder. It's to go back and ask the question, why? Have I truly trusted and received what Christ has? Fourth, we've moved from slaves to sin to slaves of God. But now you've been set free from sin, have become slaves of God. That fruit you get leads to recognition, sanctification, its end, eternal life. Paul goes on to say, you're not bound to sin anymore. It does not have authority over you. It has no power. So don't submit to it. And finally, chapter 8, verse 4, he reminds us that we've moved from flesh to spirit. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
see, Paul wants to show you, your flesh isn't able to, but God's spirit is. And the good news of the gospel is that if you've trusted in Jesus, and he's risen from the dead and defeat the power of the enemy, and he's ascended so that he can send the Holy Spirit to us, which is what he does, then God has given us a new present power in order to overcome sin. You have, listen, you, if you're in Jesus, you already have what you need. You already have it. Your option is just learning to use it. Not, I've got to figure this out. How do I just use what God's already given me? Because he's given you the power. I remember um, a few years ago, I had a, a Toyota Prius, which I loved. I'll be honest, I loved. Like, mostly because I love how little I paid for gas. But I remember one day I got into my Toyota Prius and I hit the start button and like the dashboard lit up like a Christmas tree. And I went to step on the gas pedal and I had like zero power. Like I wasn't going anywhere. And I was like, oh, darn. Well, I found out, got it towed, found out battery's dead, right? Which is like pretty significant in a car that has an electric motor. <laughs> like, and so, but thankfully my mechanic was like, hey, I can put in a new battery for you. You know, it'll cost you an arm and a leg, but I can fix it and still get a lot of life out of this car. And I was like, all right, let's do it. So he put in a new battery. I go back to the mechanic. My car that was dead now suddenly has new life. I drove it off the lot or I drove it out. It was great. I think many of us, when it comes to the reality of how we live the Christian life, we're trying to run it on dead batteries. We think, yeah, God saves me for heaven one day, but now it's up to me to figure it out. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to run the Christian life on the dead batteries of our flesh and our effort and our achievement, and our provenness, and our false identity, and false belief. And God's like, no, no, no. I changed the battery out. I gave you a new power source. I gave you my spirit. I've given you a new heart. I've made you alive. I've approached you with my grace. So why do you keep trying to run your life on a dead battery? Learn to tap into my power. Listen, here's the thing I tell people all this time. I want you to think about the last time you struggled with whatever that sin you have in your heart plagued you with. That last time where you felt just powerless against it. And I bet if you, if you were curious about that moment for a second, and you just took some time not to run from it, not to hide from it, not to excuse it, not to try to prove yourself better, you were just curious enough to think about it and approach it with grace. I'll make you this promise. If you were in Jesus, that's key, always, right? Faith starts with faith. Paul makes that. But if you put your faith in Jesus, I bet if you took time to consider it, you could think there was some moment in the journey where you were moving towards that struggle and that sin where you felt, might have been briefly, might have been for a moment, but you felt another presence that said, hey, there's another way than this. That's the Spirit of God. And the journey for freedom and salvation, when you recognize that we're being saved from the power of sin and that God's already given what you need, all you have to do is just learn how to tune into that. You, you don't have to go to a place that says, all right, well, I got I to gotta muster up. I got I, I to gotta do this. I got to figure it out. No, what you just have to recognize is, oh, God was already there. Like, this is where, for me, the biggest portion in my own journey of freedom came was when I recognized God had already given me and he was already present. And if I just learned to listen, I didn't need to have to figure it out on my own. He already had it to figure it out. I just had to follow. When you amplify the voice of the Spirit of God in your life, when you learn to listen to him, not your flesh, you will begin to find freedom for the struggle that you have. Because God has already done it for you. We are being saved from the power. And then finally, the last third and final aspect that Paul points us towards is that we will be saved from the presence of sin. So he draws all this work towards this glorious conclusion. He says it two times in the passage, verse 17. 
And if children were heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be, future, also be glorified with him. He end caps that in verse 30 by again pointing to that same kind of flow. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The Bible will often use this term of glory as the hope of what is to come. He even says that the struggles that we face now in the reality of sin still being present are not worth comparing, he says in verse 18, with the glory that is to be revealed. Constantly, Scripture uses glory as a reference to what God will do. That in Jesus, in his return, and in his restoration, we will be saved and brought into divine glory. What is glory? Well, the best definition I've heard is from Greg Lanier. He says, glory refers to the splendor of God and his divine presence. Glory is where we enjoy God's presence free from sin. So there is a future aspect. But the future aspect is a life and a world free from sin to enjoy God's presence forever. To actually be restored to the place, not where we fall short of the glory of God, but where we behold the glory of God and we live in light of it for eternity. Where sin is finally removed, judged, and dealt with fully and finally, and we experience a new creation in resurrected bodies to enjoy God's presence forever. I mean, this is the end Paul points to. In glory, we'll be with God forever and sin is no more. In glory, fallen creation becomes new creation. In glory, our fallen bodies, plagued by uh, disease and death, become resurrected bodies. In glory, our inner self is perfected. If sin is not the way it ought to be, glory is exactly the way things ought to be. And for those in Jesus, that's our hope. That's what is to come. And so God's salvation deals with our past and it deals with our present, but it also gives us future hope, which also matters for the present now because it empowers you to know that what God is doing in you, he will bring to completion. He will fully and finally realize. And so Paul labors throughout these eight chapters to say, step back and look Look at the holistic aspect of the way in which God saves you. It's not just an answer to the question at a gate in eternity. It's a holistic way in which God deals with the sin in your life through Jesus so you can experience the fullness of who he is and what you were made for. So you could behold the glory of God, restored in relationship with him and living out his purposes for the world. And so Paul continues to show us this radical aspect. And then he stops. And for some reason, it never clicked for me this week. He stops in in verse 31 as he kind of moves into this aspect. He kind of has this woe moment. He kind of stops and looks at the reality of all that he's been. And he he kind of looks at at his audience and he says, Hey, do you realize what this means? Do you really recognize if we see the fullness of what Jesus' redemption is means for you? What then shall we say to these things, verse 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. All those voices that plague your life, that come against you, that say, hey, you should feel terrible for what you've done. You should, you sinner, you stink. 
God says, man, those voices have been silenced. Who can bring a charge against us? The penalty for sin has been removed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he continues, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So are there things in the present, in the suffering that we face in a sinful fallen world that will keep us from God and experiencing his salvation for us? Are we not able to overcome what we struggle with? No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're more than a conqueror today. God's given you more than enough power to overcome the sin in your life because Jesus saves. And he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, your salvation is secure. There is no power, if you are in Jesus, that can come against, that can stop God's plan. Because Jesus saves. That's what he does. And when you step back and recognize what salvation really means, the way God deals with our sin in its totality, and we're left simply to be in a place of awe and say, praise you, God. and to begin to follow what he calls us to. Salvation matters. Not just for when you die, it matters for your life now. God doesn't want you to live in guilt and condemnation. He wants you to be free. God doesn't want you to be plagued by the same sin over and over again. He wants you to overcome as a conqueror. God doesn't want you to live in fear of what your future holds. He wants you to know that you're secure in his love and no power will stop his purposes for you until he brings you into his kingdom. So yeah, Jesus saves. And everyone needs to know that message. And we just get the opportunity to be a living billboard for it. I pray that you are. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning just for the gracious reminder of your salvation. Thank you for, thank you for Jesus. Just, we stop for a minute and just say thank you. What else can we say? I just pray this morning, Lord, that you would let these truths from your word just saturate deep into our heart. Even as we pray to, pray to just sing and respond through song, I pray that you would just just bring us back to what we saw before, that place at the cross where we're reminded of your incredible love and your incredible salvation and where our only response is to respond with surrender to you. So would you just do that work now in our hearts, I pray. We invite you to. It's in your name I ask these things. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.